Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-host, Dr. Sajan Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about refusal of medical care and transport. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So let's talk about this interesting topic. We call it RMCT. So you're refusing for medical care and transport. Someone's activated the 911 system. You show up on scene as EMS professionals, and then the patient says, I don't want to go. You know, I don't want to be transported. I just wanted you to check me out. So we're kind of going to go through that today and talk about what an RMCT is and, you know, what is our obligation and go through these different things. I'd like to share about a case that kind of inspired this talk. And that was we had a paramedic call in um, to the base hospital about a patient who ingested some unknown medications, and then a family member had called 911, and then the patient didn't want to go in. The patient was an adult was with it, um, and then investigating and getting on the phone with them, you know, was trying to figure out what medications did they ingest? They really intentionally want to harm themselves, or was it an accidental ingestion? So he really kind of dove into all the intricate details of this case. And it turned out that it was an intentional ingestion, so they ended up getting PD on the scene. The patient ended up being put on 5150 and then ended up coming in. So I think it was great by the paramedic to recognize this wasn't a traditional refusal of care. And for those of you not in California, 5150 is our uh, mandatory 72-hour psychiatric hold that um, is placed on someone if they're a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or gravely disabled. Yeah, so I would like um, to just mention how RMCTs, they're kind of a dangerous time for the medic, right? It opens themselves up to liability. You know, someone called 911. You know, somebody really reported this as an emergency, and then now we're leaving this patient behind. Let's go through RMCTs. A lot of studies talk about how RMCTs is refusal of medical care and transfer actually happen in the last two hours of your shift. And so one of the things you want to do as an EMS professional is like really double check your motives when you're signing someone out at the end of your shift, you know, really ask yourself, have you done your due diligence to make sure the patient understands the gravity of their decision? Does the patient really realize that they might be able to die? They're not going to get treatment. Um, something that just happens, you know, her circumstances that the patient didn't want to go and it happened to be at the end of your shift, or are you hoping to RMCT them at the end of your shift because you'd rather not go into the hospital and drive all the way in and have to wait in line to, to hand off your patient? And we know EMS waits are getting longer with our busy system. Let's I have no idea about this stat, actually. I, I find that fascinating because I know for myself, by the end of the shift, I'm tired and exhausted and I could I could totally see that happening. It's the same thing with physicians. So they AMA, we call it against medical advice, but it's the same thing. More patients in the last two hours of their shift than the other time. And so I think earlier on your shift, you're more energetic. You're not as beaten down. You go talk to that patient, you know, oh, we're waiting for the CAT scan. You're we're really worried you have an appendicitis. Where at the end of your shift and they want to leave, you're like, okay, sounds good. So you really have to check your motives and check yourself. All of us healthcare professionals do that we're doing the right thing by the patient always. And we really worry about this, especially in kids and older people. They or their families call 911, and they're often sicker than they appear. So please be extra cautious when you're dealing with an RMCT with this patient population. 
There are several studies that show that kids and adults over the age of 60 who are MCT are very likely to call 911 again within the next 24 hours and get admitted to a hospital. So just a few of these studies. The first study uh, was published in 2018, looking at 1,000 patients in Scandinavia. And the EMS team in these cases went on scene, did an assessment, and did not transport. And unfortunately, 25% ended up going to a hospital within the next 24 hours, with a large percentage needing an urgent admission. So the next study that we're going to touch on, also a Scandinavian study, which sidebar, I love Scandinavian research because they have a wholly integrated healthcare system where EMS and hospital and clinic data is all in one big group. So when you look at a patient's medical record, every single thing is in there. So you can do great studies with great data. So that's my sidebar. Moving on, this next study um, also comes out of Scandinavia, and it was a systematic review of 67 studies looking at non-transport in an ambulance system. And there was more non-transport of the elderly and children, and they demonstrated that 19% of the patients who were initially not transported showed up to an ED within 24 hours. Now, in another study, um, this one was in Utah, published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2003, they looked at 270,000 EMS calls. And um, this is from their entire state's statewide EMS system. They had a 5% overall uh, refusal of transport uh, number. And 20% of those had a subsequent EMS dispatch and transport to a hospital. This need for hospitalization was highest among patients above age 60 or under age 3. And of the people who died within days of EMS not transporting, 76% of those deaths were greater than 64 years old. And so when I hear these studies and talking about them, I always think, gosh, if you're signing that form or going through it with somebody who's over age 65 or young, under age 3, you really got to, in the back of your head, say, you could be really sick and don't know it and really kind of share that with them. You can share that with the patient. Like studies show that people are sicker when they're older or younger. Um, and so I really want to take you to the hospital or at least may have them make an informed decision. So I kind of have a phrase I like to use in the American Ambulance that I get teased for, but I always like to talk about if you're going to RMCT, an elderly person, you got to think hot potato. Remember your kids, you play that hot potato game. Um, if their chance of dying is much higher and you really don't want to be the last person in contact with this patient. So I feel like call the base, get the base hospital involved, you know, utilize all your resources before you're caught with a hot potato. So a big thing to talk about is capacity. So the decision to allow a patient to refuse care and to refuse transport may be one of the riskiest decisions we make. So medical providers and EMS are not required to assess our competency. You know, that's really for a judge and the legal system to decide. It's your job to assess capacity. So I want to really talk about the difference between that. So questions that help determine if a patient has capacity to make this decision what are the risks of you not going to the hospital? Like, do they understand that? You know, what could happen if you choose to not be transported to a hospital? Or why do you think this is the best option for you at this time? And why have you chosen to not go to the hospital? So I feel like if a patient can give you really kind of legitimate, you know, rational answers to those four questions, then sure, they probably have capacity uh, to make that decision to not go. Um, here in the United States, we're always allowed to refuse transport and refuse care. We just want to make sure they have the capacity to make that decision. And sometimes refusal on the part of the patient is simply because they've had a bad experience at one hospital. And if you take the time to ask them that question, then they'll tell you, you know, I had a really bad experience at this hospital. And again, in our system, the patient has the ability to choose which hospital they'd like to be transported to. And 
they are very willing to accept transport to a different hospital than the one they'd gone to before. Um, so really, there are certain things that are relatively small in our eyes that will still get the patient to an area of definitive care. And just asking these questions and trying to get to the bottom of it will help you do the right thing for the patient. And I feel like some of these are very easy, right? You know a patient and they're totally with it. They totally answer the questions, they're totally with it. It's like, great, I feel comfortable. But then when alcohol is on board or some drug use is on board, they're a little bit altered, you know, they have a little bit of baseline dementia, you know, that's really hard for an EMS professional, a paramedic, an EMT to determine. And so if you're unsure if they have capacity, I feel like it's a big dilemma in your head. Like, are you taking away a patient's civil rights or do you risk releasing them when they could be suffering from a serious injury or illness? And that's a major thing that when medics call in to the base hospital that we talk about, you know, is this patient really understanding what's going on? Though they may be a GCS 15 and may be answering all the questions semi-appropriately, are they really understanding the gravity of the situation? Are there family members there that can tell you, you know, this person isn't acting like themselves? Or, you know, this person had a few drinks tonight. I'm not sure that they'd make the same decision if they didn't have those drinks. And so having that extra information, being as cautious as possible, plays a really big role in ultimately caring for the patient. Let's go through some frequently asked questions that have come up by medics and kind of we've kind of investigated those. So the first question is always, don't I risk criminal charges for false imprisonment or battery if I take the patient against their will? Now, the good news is the courts almost universally rule in favor of those who act in good faith on behalf of their patients in emergency situations. So really ask yourself, if this was your family member, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, what would you want the paramedic to do? If you're doing the right thing by the patient and acting in their best interest, you can't go wrong. Another question is, but the patient signed the RMCT form, the risk is on them. That's actually not true. EMS professionals are much more likely to be sued for failure to treat than for providing reasonable treatment without consent, actually. So when in doubt, call the base um, and get some extra help. If capacity is in question, your suspicion for illness or injury should play heavily into this decision. Let's go through a couple cases or two cases to look at that. So you respond to a patient that's 70 years old because they're complaining of chest pain. They're sweaty. They're now feeling better um, after taking their own nitroglycerin tablets. You know, of course, in your mind, you're worried about them having a STEMI. Now this patient doesn't want to go to the hospital. Are they confident? Do they have capacity? How worried are you, right? Versus you respond to a patient who's in a small fender vendor motor vehicle crash. They complain of pain and an abrasion, and the pain is in their lower extremity. So which one do you feel more comfortable RMC team? All of us know that 70-year-old patient with chest pain who was sweaty but now feels better after nitro has a large possibility of having a huge complication medically. So I think the what they're complaining for and what you got called out for really makes a difference in this decision. If you got called out for a very minor thing, you know, you feel more comfortable leaving them um, at home versus something very serious. Now, this happens in hospitals too. In hospitals, we call it leaving AMA or against medical advice, not the American Medical Association. Um, so in one study, looking at a retrospectively matched cohort of 656 patients in 2021, they looked at readmission to the hospital after a patient left against medical advice. And they found that the risk of readmission was 12 times more in patients who leave against medical advice than compared to the non-AMA group. They also found that the AMA group had an increased 12-month all-cause mortality. 
6.7% versus 2.4%, which was clearly very statistically significant. So I think this is also take on point that when patients get upset and leave our hospital, they're still very sick. We think, oh, they're leaving, they must not be sick. And I think that's a false assumption by the healthcare system. So there's some things I want to go through about what can influence the chance of an AMA or an RMCT. You know, one is financial constraints. A lot of patients are really worried about getting a bill. They're worried about, I can't afford to be here. And so they're not really motivated by, am I having a heart attack? I need care. It's like, I don't want to get that bill. Um, let's just go through all three of us and talk about other things that you've heard of that people are leaving for reasons. Again, something I mentioned earlier was having a bad experience at one hospital over another or a family member having a bad experience somewhere. Again, you know, in our system, the patient has the ability to choose where they'd like to be transported. And as something as simple as saying, you know, we'll go to the hospital down the street instead of the hospital you went to before can be a major factor in, in their decision. And that's important to know. You can RMCT just for destination. So in our system, if you're having a STEMI, you have to go to a STEMI receiving facility, but really they can RMCT for destination and say, take me somewhere else. And you can still do that. I think another big thing which I see in the emergency department a lot, so I'm sure it happens in the pre-hospital setting too, but it's just perceived lack of caring from the patients. They feel like, you know, maybe the person that's supposed to be caring for them isn't giving them their full attention or has, you know, their arms crossed or is sighing or acting like that patient is a bother to them. And so just that general sense of not feeling I cared for, I think, can make people want to leave. And I think also there is kind of a general mistrust of the medical system, sadly, nowadays. And I feel like they're, um, if they feel better or whatever their emergency was, but they activated the 911 system as whatever made them go to the emergency department, now they change their mind. They're like, you know, I don't trust you. And so I think some of that's on us to kind of, in a short time period in the emergency department or a short time period, you know, on a scene of a call, have to kind of gain that patient's trust and know that we are trying to do the best thing for them and we're not out, you know, to take advantage of them. Let's just go through our local SEMSA refusal of medical care and transport RMCT protocol. So some of the questions that you go through are, first, does the patient have a Glasgow coma score of 15? Are there any barriers to communication with the patient? The patient's competency is not affected by alcohol or drugs. The patient is not exhibiting signs or symptoms of behavioral emergencies. And then some assessments of competency. First, does the patient understand their medical condition? Does the patient understand their treatment options? And does the patient understand the potential risk of refusing treatment? And then there's a general question that you answer for yourself. Does this EMT or paramedic um, have any concerns about the patient's competency? If there are any concerns, then base contact is actually required. And then family or bystanders, are they not expressing any concern about the patient's decision? How comfortable are they? If they are expressing concern, then actually base contact is also required. Now, what I do want to point out one more time, and I know Sajin brought this up, but just because you have a GCS score of 15, again, does not mean that you're competent to make this decision. And I find um, with all the RMCT calls I've had to take over many years, um, that's a little point that comes up again and again. Well, this patient is GCS 15, but 
Again, they might not be competent to still make this decision for themselves. And just remember to give you a backstory. So the GCS, the Glasgow Coma Score, um, was developed as a trauma score. It's really only proven and scientifically proven to be used in trauma. So I get hit in the head, then you can assess their GCS. But a lot of these people are a little altered, but they still know the year. They still can talk. They still can move their arms. But they are a little confused. And then if you ask them those mini mental status questions, like if I dropped an envelope that was totally addressed and stamped and you found it, what would you do with it? They could give you this very random answer. And so those are kind of things you kind of want to delve deeper than just a GCS. So let's go to the summary, the take-home points. What do we want people to remember? I'm going to steal Danielle's phrase and just say RMCTs are hot potatoes. You don't want to be the last person caught with a patient that's going to have something bad happen to them. So this is dangerous territory and you must tread with caution. I was really surprised by the stat of more RMCTs occurring in the last few hours of the shift. So if that is happening to you, just take a step back and reassess what's going on and if this is truly the right thing for the patient. And my take-home point is make sure that you really assess capacity. You know, are they really having the right capacity to make this decision? It is a critical decision. And we know if you're over age 60 and under age 3, the chance of readmission, even death, it goes up. And so this is a big decision to make. Um, so we really want to let those patients know and make sure they're making the right decision. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.